Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first anniversary installment of the Phenotype Speaker Series. We're really excited to be celebrating a year of the Phenotype Speaker Series, and we have a fantastic installment for you today in that celebration. I'm your host, Kira Deneen. Today, we're going to be talking about the role of open EHR in improving patient care. Our guest is Dr. Shane McKee, who is the Chief Clinical Information Officer at Belfast Health. So thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. As a little bit of a outline of the session today, we are going to be doing a 45-minute interview between me and Dr. McKee. Then we're going to be answering your questions. So throughout the session, we would love if you could use the Q&A box to submit your questions throughout, and then we'll get to that at the end. End. But if you have a question in the moment, definitely feel free to submit that question. And we're going to be really happy to answer those at the end. So for those that don't know about Phenotips, Phenotips is the world's first genomic health record system. We have software and services that make genetic professionals workflow easy and intuitive. We have tools like pedigree builders, standardized symptom capture, and diagnostic insights. Since electronic health records aren't built for genetics, as many of us have come across, Phenotips fills in these gaps by providing a complete suite for genomic medicine. And in light of the pandemic, we are sponsoring, Phenotips is sponsoring this speaker series so that we can connect with people throughout the world to be continuing our education and having these really important conversations. Um, and for those that want to learn more, you can certainly check out um, phenotips.com and you can speak one-on-one -on -one with an expert at hello at phenotips.com. And so again, um, I'm Kira Deneen. I'm your host for this webinar. I'm also the host of DNA Today. We are a genetics podcast and radio. Last year, we won the Best 2020 in Science and Medicine Podcast Award, and we're up for a nomination again this year, uh, so please help us out there. If you enjoyed this conversation today about genetics, check out our show. We have over 150 episodes in the last nine years, and I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor. And now on to our guest, Dr. Shane McKee is a consultant in genetic and genomic medicine in Belfast, and he led the Northern Ireland contribution to the UK 100,000 Genomes Project. He is the Chief Clinical Information Officer for the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust and has a longstanding passion for using technology and data to improve healthcare delivery and healthcare outcomes, particularly in the field of rare diseases. His student elective in the English hospital in the Arab-Israel town of Nazareth in 1993 sparked an enduring interest in the Middle East, and he's biked many miles in Israel and Palestine and Jordan to help raise money for the work of the hospital, which hopefully we can chat about at the end. So thank you so much, Dr. McKee, for coming on the program here. We're really excited to have you and jump into all of these exciting topics today. Kira, I'm absolutely delighted to be here and somewhat honoured to be a part of such a, a, an auspicious podcast and speaker series, especially one year. So I feel I feel very honoured. Yes, thank, thank you. you so much. And I think this is a great topic in terms of looking at the future and where we are today and how we are going to get to this open EHR. I wanted to start out by just defining what that is for people that may not be familiar with this concept. Well, they, I think it's that's a that's a good question. Actually, it turns off a lot of people whenever I start mentioning it, and I have to go back and explain what we're what we're talking about. The one of the key concepts that we're trying to get across is that if you're going to be using data in healthcare, that data has got to flow. It's got to be centered on the patient and move between the different contexts that that patient is then interacting with. So it, there's no good in me having uh, all the data on my patient locked into one particular system or in my physical paper notes or whatever it might happen to be, if that can't be then reused in a different scenario. So open EHR or open errors, it's sometimes called, was a standard. It's an open standard that was proposed back, oh, years and years ago as part of a research project, but only over the past maybe four or five years, maybe a little bit longer than that, it's really started to gather momentum in places like Australia, the uh, UK, the Nordics in particular, also Moscow, and in fact, even China um, have launched a massive project on this and lots of people internationally working on this to try and tie down what are the elements, the archetypes of clinical information that apply to a patient in wide areas of healthcare, not just genetics and genomics, but right across healthcare. What are the bits of information that we can use, the little computable atoms of healthcare information that we can define 
And then how do we link those all together in such a way that that data then flows, follows the patient, and then can be used to inform their, their clinical journey. And also maybe you know, for people like us who are in healthcare, maybe save us a bit of time and make yes. sure that we're actually getting the right information there at present. And one of the big things I think about open air and why I'm quite enthusiastic about this is this allows us then to put a lot of that back into the hands of the patient. Because the person who's going to tell you whether something's right or wrong is the person who should have given you the information in the first place. And very often that's your patient. So if you if you have a, a wrong piece of information about the patient, if you share that with them, then they're in a position to challenge that, to push back on it, and then you can get more accurate information. And then obviously when we're making our clinical decisions, we can we can do that on the basis of the best and most computable information. So it's about saving time, it's about enriching that data flow that the patient kind of carries with them through their through their clinical journey. And making it more accurate, as you're pointing out too, that if patients are more involved with that data, um, we're going to be able to catch more mistakes and information that wasn't quite correctly put in there. Um, one of the biggest challenges we've seen with the pandemic is that clinicians are moving to where the patient is. In the past year, it's estimated that 70% of appointments have been virtual, which is very different from pre-COVID. Um, with the promise of virtual care here to stay, I would think, what are the typical challenges you see with the existing hospital infrastructure? Obviously, you're coming from Ireland. I'm coming from the U.S. Phenotypes is Canada. So we're really having um, a worldwide perspective on this. But from what you see, what are some of those challenges from just what we have in terms of the infrastructure of hospitals right now? Uh, well, I guess the thing is that the hospitals are great big things. And your hospital typically has an emergency room and it has a department of internal medicine and it has surgery and it has pediatrics and neonatal and all this. And these are all in these, these different separate areas. And I think what the, the data flow has enabled us to do is to start thinking a bit outside that big concrete box and start looking at different ways that we can deliver care electronically, no matter where a patient happens to be. And we don't have to admit them into our unit to make that happen. So one of the things a lot of patients uh, experienced over the course of the COVID epidemic was that if they were unwell and they say pitched up to the emergency department and, and back in 2019, if a patient was sufficiently unwell, we just said, come into our hospital and we'll look after you for a while and we'll, we'll keep an eye on you. And one of the nicest things that I had experienced during the pandemic was we set up a virtual hospital where these patients would come to the emergency department or they would phone or whatever way we'd come into contact with them and they wouldn't need to be admitted into the hospital. We could send them home with all the backup that they needed, community nurse, physios, um, paramedics if necessary, they'd be going home with a pulse oximeter and we'd keep an eye on them and we'd phone them and we'd gather their data and we'd discuss them remotely. So none of the team would have to either meet each other and potentially cross infect each other with COVID, which would have been bad. Um, and also the patient themselves felt that they were being well looked after. So we were able to keep a lot of patients out of the hospital. So the data side of things, and I guess this is why the pandemic has really accelerated this. The data side has allowed us to start thinking of new models of care delivery. The other thing that I think the pandemic has given us that nobody anticipated and nobody was ready for, because we had to lock everybody down. If you were a grandparent, the only way you're gonna see your grandkids was on Zoom or Teams or FaceTime or something. So very rapidly, the older generation in particular, you were joking earlier off session about the boomers and things like that, yes. but the boomers, they, the boomers got, got good at this quick. They got good with their tablets. They got good with their phones really, really fast. So the amount of digital development of patients accelerated enormously and even older patients and the patients that we would normally maybe a little bit paternalistically have said, oh, right, well, you know, we Mrs. Miggins, she'll not be able to handle digital. We Mrs. Miggins is grand with digital. She's she's across this piece very, very well because this is how she communicates with her family. She's WhatsApping, she's FaceTiming, she's Zooming, she's Teamsing. So all this stuff's happening and we need to make best use of that. And one of the ways that we can make use of that is to actually gather the data back in then from the patients. So again, instead of, um, of well, sending out paper questionnaires and having people fill these out and then transcribing those, the patient can very often get access to that form online, fill in that information if they need to, or in fact, even access the information themselves. So back in a couple of years ago, when we were telling people not to go to Google, we're not, a, we're not that naive anymore. People go to Google anyway, whether you tell them to or not. So they're getting a lot of this information, but that puts them into the role of the expert patient very, very rapidly. So these are things we, we shouldn't 
kick against this. This is something that we should use and make sure that we're keeping our patients safe through that journey, acquiring that data with them knowing about it. Because that's the other thing. Patients now know an awful lot more about data and privacy and security and cybersecurity than we ever knew, people never knew before, because this is this is now part of the world they're in. So these are all these are all big benefits, and it's why the data has to flow. And again, it comes back to the open air concept. This can't be locked within, you know, Shane's database, and within Epic, and within our electronic a x-ray system or whatever it might happen to be and our genomic system. This has got to flow across the system, across the network in a way that is secure, that is respecting people's privacy and confidentiality, but at the same time then generates those uh, those, those good decisions. And that's a place that we're, we're rapidly approaching, which is great. And with that is having patients have the continuous aspect of care so that if we're having this information flow, as you say, if they're seeing different providers, that information is following them as opposed to you're having to do a medical release and now you're sending a hundred pages over to the next doctor and they're sifting through it and it's just not an efficient process. Um, There's also that people and patients want to see the same clinician and maybe the clinician moves. Um, you know, we're practicing at different locations throughout our lifetime. What changes do we need to see in the way that we deliver this healthcare to ensure that we have this continuous care for patients? Well, the, the continuity is so important, Kara. I, um, I, I, I find that a, a total no-brainer, you know, being able to see the same person or at least the same team, you know, and you know that these people are talking to each other and that they're they're in contact with each other. As human beings, you know, yeah, we can be as digital as we like, but at the same day, we are still humans. And we we do value that continuity. And, you know, one person will will know certain bits about the care. Now, I freely admit I have lots and lots of patients, so I do need them to remind me every now and again what's been going on with them. But, you know, patients don't want to be repeating the same thing to multiple different people, and they don't want to be getting to know the, another person in the same way as they knew someone else and have to restart all that from scratch again. So this is something that I think is quite valuable. In Northern Ireland here, as uh, most of your listeners probably know, North, the island of Ireland is separated into two countries. We've got the Northern Ireland at the top and uh, the Republic of Ireland at the at the bottom. Uh, but we're very, very closely related. There's, it's about 100 years since we had all that and there's been some awkwardness over the years past since then but uh, we're hoping to put a lot of that behind us but we're looking into things for example how do we deliver care across our island because it's a single epidemiological unit in a lot of ways but the pandemic has shown that there's a lot of barriers that are that are more than should have happened during because of the the pandemic and more than should have happened because of brexit with the uk leaving the european union so there there are ways and means that we have to get around that and and think of how do we how do we deliver that care so even on a small island like ireland um, there is still geographical separation between places one of my clinics is it's not that far away it's only 70 miles up the road but at the same time i can't get 70 miles up the road very very fast whereas i can see that patient in their living room in you know, 70 miles away 100 miles away 150 miles away 10,000 miles away i can see them in real time over video and that's that's not a bad surrogate for an in-person meeting. And we find we find ways of doing that. So the, the continuity aspect, I think, can be enhanced by the use of, of digital to, to pull that on through. And then obviously capturing the data as we go means that when I'm talking to the patient, I've got that in front of me. So I know what the current situation is. I know who they've seen last week. I know who they're going to see next week. Um, I know if I'm seeing them virtually today and I need maybe a DNA sample to run an array or run a panel or run a genome or whatever, I know that I can ask the, the next person they're going to see, if they're going to see them physically, I can get that sample. So it allows us to join up the care an awful lot better. And you that mentioned that looking at, yeah, definitely. And, and looking at the, like this open EHR concept of you know, certain data that's in there, like you would see what doctors they recently saw and you're up to date on what that medical care has been for them. What other kind of clinical data is stored in an open EHR? How is this made accessible for the patient side, but also the clinician side? So it's it's maybe worthwhile going a little bit back into the technical architecture of open air to sort of just explain exactly what, what that's around. So open air isn't a um, it's not really a philosophy of a, of a design of a system. It's, a, it's an actual 
um, is an actual specification for uh, for data formats and data um, interchange. So these are very tightly defined. They're crowdsourced effectively. You know, you've got experts from all over the place who are inputting into these these clinical archetypes. These are then stored in a vendor neutral archive format, and then they're displayed out the top um, via a ways that all be put together like templates to so that if you want to build a form to collect say phenotype data then it's displayed to you in a template but it'll then take all that stuff from the template and it'll store it in these these archetypes so you'll be guaranteed to know what that is so it's a very specific format but what that allows you to create then is a platform of data it's a data platform you can then build a genetics app if you like to look in on that and to deal with it it does this by application programming interfaces that interface with the uh, with the data and you've got all your computation and logic and things happening in between but it means you can make very pretty um, and very user-friendly interfaces to the data and you can hire companies to do all this but they don't have to worry about storing the data if you're a hospital um, or a health system and you're trying to um, get a company to come along and build an application for you to do whatever clinical application it is a huge amount of the expense and the cost and everything is built around storing the data. And that's actually, unfortunately, that's the way a lot of companies have built their business models. It's about you know how we're gonna run this database mm-hmm. and they're gonna spend all their time running their database and all their design running their database, but not building a nice user interface on top. And nice user interfaces are critical to being able to deliver quality healthcare. And that's where Epic has done a really good job, in my opinion. I know in the US, um, you guys are much more billing focused in your health system we are. Yes. than we are in the UK. Uh, we don't care about all that stuff. Somebody else looks after the money. Um, we look after the patients. Sounds like <laughs> so a nice we, format. <laughs> it has its advantages. Yeah. But <laughs> but um, but one of the things we want to try and make this make this stuff work with is to be able to for any companies or contractors that we're um, getting in, we want them to really focus on making these things slick and making them look usable for patients and for staff. Um, and for then, and also to work on the analytics of so the, uh, the computation of the data. I really don't want them to look after my data because the data, we're going to look after that on behalf of the patient. So I don't want that in a silo. And I don't want the company coming to me and say, oh, we can build an interface to your system and to Epic and to this, that, and the other. Um, and that'll cost you another $100,000 or whatever it might happen to be. I don't care about that. Um, I just want you guys to make a nice slick thing that uses the data that I'm going to tell you where the data is and then you build on top of that. So OpenAir allows you to, to build that sort of a vendor neutral platform. And let's say, for example, the guys that are running our database um, that I fall out with them and I realize that they maybe don't give me enough um, you know, quick turnaround or something, or, they don't, or they're costing me too much money. I can go to someone else and I can immediately import all that data back in again. There's no migration involved in it because it's vendor neutral. So it means that it creates a much more healthy environment for the software companies to to work in. It's also quite protective to our software companies because, as you know, the, the regulations around data and the potentials for fines and lawsuits and things that can arise out of data breaches are spectacular. Um, in the EU with the GDPR, which um, we're in the UK, we've got written into our UK legislation as well. Um, the, the fines can be absolutely enormous, but the responsibility of looking after that data is huge. So if I can separate out the different functions and have my crack cybersecurity team mm-hmm. looking after the data and my crack user interface team um, making pretty windows for my staff to interface with and feel happy and my crack analytics team parsing that data out into, into novel insights and into, a, um, into well, tests and diagnoses and better patient management and cures and better patient outcomes, then that makes me happy. And it's splitting that apart that is, is what we wanted to try and do. This was a thing that was brought up by our former health secretary, a guy called Matt Hancock. Um, this time around last year, he uh, announced to the delight of most of us techies in the audience that he wanted to separate out what they call the data layer from the application layer. So the database from the, from the application and that this was going to be the new uh, way forward for the health service in the UK. So that sounded good. Um, and open air is a way of making that happen. So we're, we're very hopeful. And it sounds like doing that also makes the data more secure that it's in, I don't know if it's necessarily one location, but controlled by one institution organization. And then you have other 
companies, third parties that are just helping you access and manage that instead of actually housing the data. Because I think when people hear about, oh, okay, if we have this workflow where everybody can access the data, well, how are we keeping that secure? I think that's a question as you brought up too, of just patients are much more aware of data security and privacy with that. Um, am I along the right lines in terms of there just being more secure when it's these two layers that you're talking about? Absolutely. Um, there's there's only one head to cut off, as the saying goes, um, or one neck to choke. Um, yeah, it, it becomes much more secure from that point of view. But the other thing, and this is, this is again where I think it gets quite interesting, is that the structure of open air and the way it's, the way it's built is such that you can then federate databases so let's say I'm in one healthcare organization and I want to run a search on my data for a very rare genetic condition. Let's say I'm looking for geliophysic dysplasia type 3. There are not very many patients that are going to be in my database with geliophysic dysplasia type 3. And I know that nobody else is going to have very many. But let's say we've got lots of different um, healthcare organizations here running open air. I can then federate out that query to their databases and it can find out where those patients sit without actually revealing any of the confidential information back to me. So I can actually perform very, very secure searches on that. Obviously, this is all controlled by the governance uh, departments of the of, who are looking after the various uh, information assets. But it means that you can start to federate that stuff out. And then depending on the service level agreements and the memoranda of understanding and data access agreements that you have with other people that are working in your consortia, you can build on the fly queries that can be that can correlate with those data governance regulations that can then be run on multiple different systems and can provide you back information that is is properly um, spec as far as the confidentiality and the consent of the patient is concerned. So it actually makes the um, some of the stuff you can do with the data infrastructure really really interesting. Yeah, and just opens patient care, because if you're able to find other patients with, you know, as you said, like a very specific rare disorder, then you may be able to contact their healthcare providers and learn from each other. And then you can better help all of those patients. Um, so just that communications aspect and being able to use this data, but in a confidential and really like filtered way. Um, for people that are hearing about this and some of it may be very new to them that they've never heard of this open air before, open EHR. What resources do you recommend that would help them learn more about the concept? How can they become more active in this community and, and really be ahead of the curve when it comes to us adopting all this technology? Well, I, think, I do think it takes a while to get your head around exactly what this is, this is all about. So one of the places I would really recommend to start, um, there have been a number of open air days, um, as in conferences that have been uh, videoed and are online and uh, we can put the links into into those actually there's a very good youtube channel run by one of the one of the companies called um better healthcare it used to be called Morand healthcare from slovenia um and they've put together a good a good playlist really good playlist of um of open air related videos introducing the concept of open air and um, introducing areas where it's been used so we're talking genomics today, but this has been used across multiple different settings, primary care in Moscow, um, running entire hospital systems in Slovenia, um, running the, the background of the, um, the EHRs in the Nordic countries. Um, there's been a lot of work done in Australia, in the UK, elsewhere. Lo loads of places across the world have adopted this for things like registries and, and live information. And so it's, it's, a, it's very, very flexible because at the end of the day, one way um, of thinking about this and it is why it's good to go back and, and look at this and remember how to spell open air is open EHR. And if you search on that in, in Google, you'll find loads of stuff. But um, one way of thinking about it that I quite like was uh, introduced to me by a lady called Heather Leslie, who's an Australian who's done a lot of work on, on open air, is to think of it like Lego blocks. Do you guys know what, what Lego is in, in the US? Oh, and definitely. And everything yes. as well. <laughs> you, you certainly know if you stand on a block of it, if you've got small kids. <laughs> In your and your socked feet but we've all been there at some point <laughs> but what you can do is if you if you want to if you want a thing if you want a toy you've got a choice one is you can go down to the toy shop and you can look around and you can see all right there's my toy and th th i like that that's the toy i would like to have and you buy that toy and you bring it home and you play with it for a while and you get a bit fed up with it this 
as a child, obviously, um, or as an adult, it could be a tablet, it could be a game for your thing, but you play with it for a while, you get fed up with it, and then it gets discarded or it gets broken, or some bit of it turns out not to be quite what you wanted, and you get a bit fed up with it, and it's not quite doing the thing. Lego, on the other hand, um, if you have a little Lego, you build your own toy out of standardized, very standardized blocks, because you know that this block is going to fit onto this block, and it's going to leave you two little pins that you can fit another block onto, and you can you can do that, and you can build all sorts of things very, very flexibly. And open air, you can think about open air working a little bit like that, where you can flexibly construct uh, a thing out of out of open air to meet the needs that you have happen to have. Now the thing about that, the great thing about it is that you don't have to then pop down to the toy shop again. And one of the things that we have in the UK, and I'm sure you guys have it in the States and Canada and everything as well, is procuring systems in healthcare is a real pain. It takes a really long time, costs hundreds of thousands or far more dollars than it needs to. Um, and everybody gets sad and it's not a, it's not a happiness generating procedure. Um, and as well as that, you're also giving away a lot of the, the knowledge that it would take to, to put this stuff together to a third party. So you can't really build that sort of knowledge in-house. And you really need to have informed customers to end up with a good solution out the other end. So this allows you to, uh, to think about building your solutions and also generating that knowledge and also doing it very fast. So adopting like an agile type um, iterative approach to design and development and being able to look at you know what's working well, what's not working well, ditch what's not working well or alter it or change it and do that very, very fast without having to do the standard, go back to the supplier, sort X, Y, and Z out, wait for a new release and then come back in. So it breaks that whole process apart. It's much more exciting, I think, for the people doing the development. And I'd like to think it's also more exciting for the companies. Uh, we've been involved with a couple of different companies working with this and uh, well, we're having a really good relationship so far and I think we're delivering value so everybody at the moment is feeling is feeling pretty good about this and you can see the value iteratively as it comes along so as a customer um, you really feel you're getting something uh, from it and your patients hopefully are getting something from it as well and with new applications always being able to be developed in you're having that open market really of saying, okay, all the data secure and that's there, but being able to access it and how you're doing that can be different with companies developing different applications as they're doing it, which is like the fresh side of it, that that's always going to be different and, oh, yeah. and good to have competition between companies to say, oh, well, they built it this way. They built it this way. And kind of just having like the best tools coming out of that. Yeah. And even AB testing, you know, so I, let's say I wanted a, an app or something for a recording something with Nanites. So, we get company A to, to build one and we maybe build another one in-house and we test the two of them together. You know, it's no longer a matter of assessing all your options up front. You can, you can actually test these things in real life um, on, the, on the data. Now, there are elements of looking through that and making sure that, you're a, that this is all tight and that the data is being used appropriately and everything else. You know, you, you, your governance does not go out the window with this. You, you do need very careful data governance over it, but it's a different atmosphere to, uh, to, to work with the data. And I think it makes it very, very um, completely ideal for genomics because you know, this is a very rapidly advancing field and we're getting new diagnoses all the time. People are coming up with new ideas all the time and we want to get those integrated into our systems and into our, into our workflows and into what we do with our patients. So it's why that sort of thing I think works well with genetics and genomics. Yeah, because everything moves so fast, we need companies to be developing this because if we are really relying on government side of things, it just is going to move slower, you know, for every country, I think there. It is. And we've, we've got to move away from this concept of intellectual property um, in a lot of these things as well. This A lot of this has got to be open because we've got to share this stuff around. We can't be keeping this all under wraps. So the way, part of the, the, the companies that we've been dealing with, their concept is that the way they generate their revenue is not via licensing IP, but it's by doing a damn good job. And if they do a damn good job, then of course we're going to want to keep them doing the damn good job. And we're going to pay them for doing that good job. So it, it changes that, that revenue model. We're not after IP here. We're after delivering real proper good stuff because IP is very transitory in the electronic world anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And, and just looking at all the 
data that we were talking about earlier, just that we can access with it. And, and you said something earlier that I want to circle back to, which is looking at getting data ahead of time versus, you know, looking at it from a historical perspective and going through old data. What are your thoughts between like balancing, investing, collecting more structured data upfront versus extracting this data from a historical perspective of, of going through older data? Uh, there's, I think it, it's going to be, end up being a bit of a balance of both. But I think as we as we move forward and as we get better at this and we certainly build the systems that allow us to record the data in the first place, then we can enforce that structure a little bit a little bit better up front. I don't think we're going to get away from the need to use machine learning, natural language processing, et cetera, to, to haul data back out of historical records. But um, if if we if we design things right going forward, then if we have it structured when it goes in, then again, it's that whole thing about the open air of being able to know that your archetype means what you think it means. So it's that provenance of the the data all the way through the system that you can really rely on. I'm still a little bit cagey about the provenance of stuff that's been extracted by machine learning or NLP. I think everyone is. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can always check these things with the patient. If, if, if that's appropriate or if that's a thing that you can do you know you there are um, there are good ways of making sure that you've got the right end of the stick but yes if it's more structured as we go forward then that's a good thing we do need to be conscious i guess that um, not all data is entirely structurable and we're not going to have archetypes for everything and patients aren't going to present things to us in such a way that we're going to be able to immediately put it into a structured archetype anyway so we do need that narrative we need that human communication thing um, that, that goes on and gives us the nuance as to what means a lot to a particular patient in terms of making the decisions. But, um, but I think this allows us to pull a lot of the other stuff back out and make sure that we're not cluttering the two, the two pots, the, the more qualitative pot with the more quantitative stuff. And when it comes to accessing this data, we've talked about healthcare providers having access, patients having ask, access, but we haven't really talked about a third party, which is caregivers, that it's not directly their medical information, but they really are either in charge of the patient helping them, um, you know, maybe if it's someone's parent, it's it's their child that's really helping to manage their care. How would this concept of, of the open air impact the work of caregivers and their role in all of this? I think that that's back to the governance concepts that don't just apply to open air. I think this is a much wider um, concept, but the, the notion of the circle of care and the people who have access to certain elements of data and control over or are acting on behalf of a patient who's not able to maybe consent on their own behalf or either for legal reasons or age reasons or, or infirmity reasons. Um, the being at least having your data in a, in a structure that you're able to attach metadata onto to say this is okay to be released to this person um, is a is a better way of doing it. Unfortunately, with paper records and things, um, one of the difficulties we have is redacting out information. If these are family charts, very often that we're dealing with in genetics or family information, um, as I was saying, we're not fully electronic yet, but um, if we were, if we've got a medical legal inquiry or if we're writing to another clinician, we have to be careful what we redact out of information we're sharing with them. Um, having that data electronic and having tags on the information as to what's shareable and what's not allows that to be done much more rigorously. So yeah, it's a, it, doesn't, it doesn't wave a magic wand and immediately solve that problem. It just means that you've got a new, um, a new platform or a new way of, of addressing it. And when that data goes in of, of having ways to identify like what information would need to be redacted so that when it comes time for that, if it's exported, it's exported in a redacted sense. And then you're having that data in that way. So it's shareable. Um, I want to pop over to a couple questions that we have from some viewers today and feel free everybody to be submitting questions. Um, with Epic being rolled out across Northern Ireland, how do you see Open EHR working in conjunction with that implementation? I know we talked about that a little bit, but I'd love to get your sense. I know you're very excited about this. We were talking a little bit before the broadcast here um, that it's a slow rollout, but you know it is it is happening. Um, how do you see that working with uh, Open EHR? Um, this is going to be a big challenge. For sure, um, because this is this is a new thing for us in Northern Ireland is moving to a, a explicitly a monolith a health system. Epic is obviously 
you know it's massive in in the world in terms of as a as a healthcare um, electronic record. So what we need is we need ways of getting that information back out again and getting getting that corresponded directly to the open air archetypes that allow us then to uh, build all that. There is a lot of work going on at the moment to work out how we're how we're going to do that, and it is fair to say a lot of that is contractual and to do with the relationship that we're setting up with Epic. So we're still quite early in our journey of um, of mapping out exactly what bits and pieces are going to work in the workflow with uh, with Epic. But uh, but yeah, that, that's that's maybe a question that I'll, I'll be better able to answer a, a little bit closer to our go live. But uh, there's still a lot of negotiation and a lot of work to do that. You know, we respect Epic. Uh, immensely and we respect what they're trying to do and the integrity of their system and the complexity of the, of the workflows that they're, they're trying to work with. Uh, we also know that Epic is not going to do everything for us. Um, it's going to do a heck of a lot, but it's not going to um, address a lot of the edge cases. So one of the uses that I want to have for open air is to have that available as um, our, almost like a sidecar. Someone's like a sidecar to your monolithic system. Um, that allows you to maybe do things that are a little bit more flexible and a little bit different from what would be in the main in the main system, but at the same time still communicating data with the main system and still and still retaining that continuity. So uh, I'll maybe be able to answer Ian's question a little bit more definitively, a little bit down the line whenever we've got our knees dirty. Yes, yeah, I think that your answer will evolve as, as things change and that you know that starts coming to fruition with everything. You know, talking about we've been talking about like the UK, the US, Canada, um, the open the concept of this open EHR has more traction in the UK so far of what we've been talking about, and not as much here in the US. Why do you think that? Why do you think that there has been a little bit more pushback in the US when it comes to you know adopting this new technology? One of my favorite books, and I would recommend this to anybody. It's a few years old now, but it's still it's still live and it's still good. Uh, Bob Wachter from UCSF wrote a great book called The Digital Doctor about the, um, the, the, the informatization, if you like, of, of healthcare in the US. And obviously there were a huge number of initiatives that were um, that go back quite a number of years actually, but then came to fruition with the High Tech Act um, in the US um, pushed through by, uh, I think it was President Obama who had launched the high tech, but he was certainly there whenever it, was, it came into, um, it, it came into full fruition. And there was a very, very strong push, very, very fast to get IT systems into healthcare delivery organizations in the US. And I think that that sort of happened a little bit before open air really started getting going. And often whenever you do that, then you create an environment. So the environment was created. And I think I think maybe the a now that open air is kind of coming along, it's hard then for open air to get back into that environment whenever things have already gone to that extent. Having said that, uh, one of the things that we're trying to do with our own, and this actually impacts on Ian's question about the open air working alongside Epic, we're hoping to try and find ways of making those, those systems work nicely together. And hopefully that learning will be able to come across then to other health economies that have invested very, very heavily in in large in large systems, we know from our discussions with other um, other places like integrated care systems in the U.S. Um, and organisations like Intermountain would be a good example, um, where there are still a lot of different systems that are going on. You've got your your big monolithic system, whether it's Epic, Cerner, or the, any of the others, and but that doesn't necessarily solve all your issues. So you're still left with thorny bits um, in between. One thing I suppose the information coming out of the US has told us is that you can't really do all this completely on the cheap. You do need to throw a bit of money at it. Yeah. And you know that's that's the way it is. Uh, in the in the UK, I think we've we've always had this slightly homegrown cottage industry way of looking at some of our IT. And we do need to get real. And we do need to realize that these things are expensive and we need to we need to actually invest properly in it. But invest in the right bits of it. So you remember I mentioned about the IP. I'm not, I'm not going to invest in allowing somebody to build their IP. I'm going to invest in them delivering me a great service that I can then transfer onto my patients. And I think the key word there that you're saying is invest. If you invest in this, it's, it is going to pay off in the long run in terms of, you know, if you are paper-based or doing other types of systems, 
that takes a lot of time and, and time is money. And so if you're able to use this and you don't have to track down patient files and, you know, that whole aspect, then you're able to see more patients, you're able to give better care, it's going to be more accurate. So it's kind of all of those things that, yes, yeah, so at the beginning, there's going to be some hurdles of just, uh, you know, adopting to any kind of new technology. Um, but even as you said, you know, we were saying with like the boomer generation, and everything, once you start doing that, you do get into the groove of it. And then you see, okay, this is, you know, not as, as hard as we thought it was going to be. And just like all of the payoff from it. Oh, the, the crazy thing is, I mean, we, we've got a system in uh, Northern Ireland at the moment called the Electronic Care Record, the NIECR. It's, it's, it's been truly revolutionary. It came in about eight years ago. Um, it's from a New Zealand company called Orion that we've worked with um, for a long time. And what it does is it pulls together all the patient letters, all the x-rays, all the lab uh, blood results, all the appointment data. Um, into one single portal for the for the whole of Northern Ireland. So we've got uh, about 2 million people um, in Northern Ireland. There's five big health organizations, five healthcare trusts um, that are operating across Northern Ireland. Previously, all their data systems were all removed, but we're effectively one healthcare economy. Um, and in our trust, in the Belfast Trust, we have a lot of the regional services that deal with everyone across Northern Ireland. So not having access to all that information has been problematic in the past. But over the past number of years, we've had that all pulled together in one place. And if I'm speaking to my patient and I can pull up all their letters and all their appointments and all their x-rays and all their blood results and things while they're either sitting in the clinic with me or across the video link, that means that that interaction becomes a much more valuable interaction. And um, it allows me to think of other diagnoses that I maybe hadn't thought about before or wouldn't have been able to think about. I don't have to request notes from anybody ever anymore or blood results from anybody. Um, I can I can pull that stuff all in because that's all there. So it's it's a much richer experience. The crazy thing is that you know we back in the olden days of this we'd show this to our patients. We'd turn around the screen and say, look what I can do. Look at all this information that I've got. Isn't that fantastic? And the patients sort of saying, well, I thought that's what you had all the time. Is that that's that should be just normal because the patients do adapt very quickly and they they expect us to have all this and they expect us to be doing all this and they're not wrong. <laughs> you know, we should be doing all this. And I think the, the electronic data revolution has, has actually really allowed us to, to start making that a reality. So, you know, we're, we're all in a different part of the, the journey with this, but it is, it definitely is picking up pace. Yeah. And I think in the U.S., like every genetic counselor, genetic healthcare provider at some point has experienced, you know, they mentioned that a family member has a genetic variant, a, a mutation, and they don't have the paperwork for it and they don't know what gene it is, or you know, they don't know the details of that. And you end up having a longer conversation of trying to get pieces together. Maybe we can help figure this out as opposed to, oh, you just bring it up in, in the system and it's right there. And now you're, you just save 20 minutes of just trying to figure that out or longer if you're trying to track down results, call other hospitals and everything. So um, you know, just one example of that, I think you know, I've experienced quite a lot in the last few years. Um, and I want to get to a question from Peter here in the chat. Um, does the move to SAAS mitigate some of the issues around those painful Lego blocks? In other words, consumers being able to use intuitive apps as needed without the risk of outright purchases and cost of in-house development. Yeah, I, I think so. That's that's exactly it. Um, and Peter's got that bang on the button. Um, you know, it, it makes these it makes these pieces, these elements, not quite disposable, but kind of disposable um, so you can try these things quite quickly um, and your and the business model then does move more towards software as a service um, where where you you can you have much more flexibility over how you how you do these things the I guess the other thing as well you know if you're putting in a big system um, and it only it probably only makes sense to put in big systems on the old model you know putting in small systems is just such a waste of time because our waste of money and resource and everything because it's just so painful but um, yes, if we're able to move these things into software as a service and have our data federation rules and our governance around that tight at that source, then yeah, that, that makes that a much more attractive uh, proposition and it does decrease the risk quite a lot. And you can then build that into revenue models and things which become a bit more attractive to the financial guys. Yes, we have to appease to them as well. It's kind of everybody that oh, we're yes. convincing. <laughs> Well, so we often have to have to appease them in retrospect. We have some very scary economists at our Department of Health here that I need to keep on board and make sure that I'm spending the public's money uh, wisely. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and what other hurdles do you see with, 
you know, making these changes to these systems. We've talked about a few throughout, and I think, you know, financially that being one of them. Um, are there others that you've identified that are going to be issues as we adopt to this or try to adopt to this that, you know, you've identified and, and ways that maybe we could be approaching those issues? Yeah, I think um, some of the hurdles are that a lot of information and a lot of the old systems, it you know, you've got to make a decision, do you migrate the information in and then close down the old system or do you build an interface? And there are arguments either way for a lot of these things. So you, but you still end up, or you can end up with just quite a complex ecosystem of different systems uh, working with each other. In the genomic side, effectively, what I'm really looking for out of, out of my particular use case is to be able to pull in the bits of information that I know are going to help me make a genetic diagnosis or very often to interrogate a gene panel or even identify a gene panel of whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing so that we can then build that that diagnostic flow and then it comes out the other end with the variants that we need that we can then classify those variants and decide whether they're pathogenic or not. So to support that, that gene workflow, the workflow for internal medicine is going to be something different. The workflow for gastroenterology is going to be something different. So it's, yeah, it's we, we can't throw away all the stuff so we can't bring all those other toys necessarily down to the recycling center. Sometimes we're going to need them. And it's, I think that's going to be a challenge, just how we, how we keep that whole ecosystem running. There's that whole, you know, the XKCD um, cartoon series. I wish where I did. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's geeky stuff. You, um, it's geeky. <laughs> you, I should know it. <laughs> you, you, you know that you saw it. Um, so it's a little stick characters and they're generally doing geeky things about space and planets and science and stuff but uh, there's uh, there's one of the ones where the where one person's talking you know how are we going to deal with all these different data standards we've got like 14 data standards and the other person says well why don't we not like build a standard that will actually pull together all this data and then there's another little box the final box sort of says later you know now we have 15 data standards so it's there is a there's a propensity it's like an entropy generating procedure where this will generate more complexity as we go along so it's actually very hard to push against that and simplify things but open air part of the idea is to try and simplify that and get that back into the stage where human brains can actually comprehend it rather than it being something that's only comprehended by by computers i mean i was noticing on the the qa chat there eric sundval now eric knows far more about open air than i will ever know so uh, he's, he's sharp on this kind of stuff, but he was asking about a thing called phenopackets. And phenopackets is a, you guys in phenotypes will know all about phenopackets, I would imagine, because um, this is about how you, you pull together phenotypic information into effectively a, a templated section of data that you can then fire across to different health systems and, and use that then to, um, to inform your genetic diagnostics, but also to get a really good clear picture of that patient that you can then interrogate genomes and a uh, genomic data with. Um, there's been a, a good bit of work done on that um, to try and rationalize that information with open air and to map across the different linkages that will, will make that happen. I'm really quite excited about that, but I'm a geneticist and that's why I'd be excited by that because that's, that's a really good, um, a really, really good venture and that's so exactly what Phenotips does too, of just being able to put all that data together. Um, so yeah, thank you for kind of popping that link in the chat there, Eric. Um, so talking about with the, like, you know, you're talking about with genetic workflow and that it's gonna be different from other departments, but obviously we're kind of more focused on the genetic side. Is there aspects that you want to see in those applications that's gonna work with OpenEHR in terms of what they do? I think that being one of them, like looking at the, um, like the pheno packets and all that, but is there other aspects that you're like, you know, this would make my job easier. I think other people that work in genetics in terms of what those applications have and how we can like access and manipulate the data. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's that's kind of the- Like what's your the, wish list, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's the denouement, that's where, that's where we're heading with this. We're building a thing in Northern Ireland uh, called Gene Oceanic which stands for Genetics Open Core Engine Accelerating Northern Ireland Care. It's, a bit of a, it's an allusion to the old ocean liners that we used to build back in Belfast in 100 years ago. Um, the, but the idea would be that we want to try and find a way of, um, of structuring genomic queries, because this is, this is our 
or my nirvana is that if a patient that comes into me has got certain amount of a certain phenotypic characteristics that I've identified and pulled out of their genetic or out of their EHR, and then I use that to make a specific request. Now, I mean, we know because we work in genetics that you can't just sort of say, oh, here's a patient, I don't know what's wrong with them, do a genome. You've got to structure your question in such a way that allows you to pull the information out of the genome in a meaningful way, then get the variant lists that come out of your genome information. So the genetic variants that um, you might get, well, obviously we've all got about a million of these or more than a million of variants that are, make us different from anyone else, but the ones that are likely to be causing the particular problem the patient has, linking those up and making that tight, and then passing that information to our multidisciplinary team of scientists, bioinformaticians, clinicians, genetic counselors um, and specialty physicians and surgeons, et cetera, to allow us to kind of come to a conclusion, it's this particular needle in this particular haystack that's causing this particular problem, making that link tight. That's, I think that's one of the key things that currently there's not really anything that does that in a, um, in a unified flow way. It's, it's very, very bitty and um, it's reliant on people, uh, knowing what information to pull together. Um, we haven't maybe formalized or codified the decision-making processes, <clears throat> excuse me, that we, uh, that we build around that. So Gene Oceanic, the idea is to try and pull that all together into a coherent and understandable workflow and obviously evaluate that workflow as we, as we go through it and see, can we make that process better? There's the concept as, you know, and everybody knows in genetics, this concept that we talk about of a diagnostic odyssey where the patient starts off and spends years wandering around in the desert, vultures and buzzards and crocodiles and things and all that chasing after them. They have, patients have a hard time getting to a diagnosis. Now, diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean, right, okay, that's it, everything's sorted out now and away you go. The diagnosis is the first step often though towards getting to a more definitive management or even an understanding or even just feeling a bit of sense of psychological closure over what we've got here. And the longer you spend your diagnostic odyssey, the bigger that problem is. And at the minute that's far too long, it's years and years for a lot of our patients. So we wanna try and shorten that down. And we wanna try and use the, the technologies and the, um, the information that we've got, the data that we've got to, to really make that slicker, but to make it not just slicker for the lucky patients who happen to come in whenever the penny's about to drop in Dr. McKee's brain here. All ah, right, all of a sudden this, this is grand. I want that to happen for everybody or at least as, to the, as, as best as we can get it for everybody. So it's to try and democratize this genomic process and let's not maybe depend on the number of cups of coffee I've had or the last journal article that I, my registrar has read. You know, it, 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 makes it, it makes it more robust. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and just, I think the diagnostic odyssey, as you said, can be so difficult to have an undiagnosed disorder. You just are really in the unknown. And, and once you have a diagnosis and hopefully an accurate diagnosis, then as you said, that's the first step that you can start learning about that disorder, seeing if there's treatments and investing in research and becoming active in the community. Um, so if we can do things on our end, on the, you know, through open air, through these different applications and platforms. At the end of the day, we're really helping patients if we can give a diagnosis years earlier than maybe we would have if we were relying on pen and paper and old fashioned methods. That, that's what it's for. Yeah, definitely. And that's what we are for. Yes, yes. I think, I hope. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with um, before we wrap up the webinar for today? Um, I think it's, it's, Really, really simple thing, Kara. You know, when we're uh, in genetics and genomics, we're really, really fortunate, I think, in a lot of ways, because we're at the cutting edge of the science and the informatics. And um, I think a lot of us are driven by curiosity because we want to know the answer. But at the same time, this is really, really helping people. One of my patients that I saw um, just the other day, um, she made the diagnosis clinically on her child of a very, very rare genetic disorder that I had no idea what it was. And uh, whenever we got the gene test back, that's what it was. And she was right. It's and, remarkable. And I'd love to give her a job because I'd never seen it before in my life. And oh, Craigie, how does she do this? But they, you know, we, we need to make better use of our, of our patients. But, you know, our, our curiosity in this is also matched by curiosity. And this time it's a curiosity with a need um, in our patients. So how do we, how do we make that work better? And the other thing I suppose, I guess, is, um, you know, we, 
we do this nowadays at the drop of a hat, but we've got to think internationally and think of sharing things and sharing stuff right across the full spectrum of a of our our small little planet. That's why um, you mentioned at the start of the the broadcast there that I do a bit of cycling out in the Middle East. Um, I I learned a lot at this little hospital in Nazareth in northern Israel, and that's one of the reasons why why I go back there from time to time just to see people doing things in a slightly different way from the way we do things. They're a modern hospital. Um, you know, this is a, a modern hospital, a modern country. Um, they're well run, they're catering for a community that is very different from my own community here in Belfast. But nonetheless, there, there are lots of similarities and it's bringing people together. So, you know, in a, in a place like that, in, in Belfast here, we've, uh, you know, everybody knows about Northern Ireland, Protestant and Catholic and things like that. But we've got Protestants, Catholics, atheists, Muslims, Hindus, Druze, Jews, and same in Israel, you know, you've got Jewish people, Arab people, uh, Muslim, Christian, Druze, and people of no faith. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're all humans, and humans are funny organisms, and trying to understand humans is what we're trying to do in genomics and genetics, and it's that kind of thing that I think, yeah, the, the curiosity is not just at the scientific level, it's not just at the clinical level, it's at the cultural level, it's at the what makes us tick. So we're on a, a big, long journey here. I still haven't managed to get them uh, switched on to open air yet, but uh, one of my best friends out there is the head of medical records, and I'm working on him. Wow. So, that, that would uh, be the person to talk to and, and work on with it. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, we've got fantastic geneticists out there, incidentally. There's uh, some of my friends in uh, well, in, in Haifa and in Afula and in Jerusalem um, have very, very good genetic centers, as, as you'll know, and I mean, I'm sure that you guys and, uh, and the audience will know some of these uh, folks and some of them hopefully would actually be on it. I don't know, but um, so big shout out to the guys out there. Um, but yeah, things are things are moving forward and they need to keep moving forward. And where can people find you on Twitter and and how about your hashtag for your upcoming biking that you're doing? Yeah, guys, if you can sponsor my bike ride, I would really love it. And um, this is actually for the pastoral care team of all of all teams that they're they're looking for. The hashtag is Nasbike twenty one N A Z B I K E two one Nasbike twenty one on Twitter. And my tweet is a or my Twitter handle is at Shane M for Michael U for Unicorn K for King um, Shane M U K and you'll see all the crazy stuff that I'm doing there. I don't really, really tweet about genomics very often. It's usually silly stuff. So, but I haven't got fired yet. So that's, I have been admonished a few times by my medical director, but that's another story. So yeah, if, if people can check that out, it'd be really grateful. And uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you today. Yes, thank you so much. Um, and I hope that I am sharing the right screen here if we're all seeing the Phenotip Speaker Series to learn more about Phenotip Solutions. You can speak one-on-one -on -one with an expert at by uh, contacting hello at phenotips.com there. And we do have an upcoming webinar um, that we're going to be doing here. Um, if I can just hold on one moment, trying to do too many things at once over here. Um, so our upcoming um, webinar is going to be on August 10th. So we're going to be talking about the future of pediatric genetics. We're going to be with Dr. Marshall Summer, Dr. Garrett Vockley, and Dr. Stephen Kingsmore. So the link for that is going to be on the Phenotip Speaker Series page, where you can also sign up to receive alerts on upcoming sessions. We would love to have feedback uh, once this webinar ends. So you can fill that out to give us some feedback on this session, what you want to hear about in the future. And if you wanna connect with us on social media, um, again, for Dr. McKee, that's at Shane M-U-K. Uh, and for us, I'm at DNA Today on social media. So you can search that. Also go to dnapodcast.com. And I wanted to, again, thank Phenotips for being the sponsor of this series. Phenotips is passionate about transforming workflows through technology. Their software includes tools for deep phenotyping, which we've talked about today in this webinar a little bit, phenotype-powered genetic analysis, as well as many other tools for genetic workflows. And we all know just how important that is. If you have a challenge you're trying to solve or you're working towards making your department more efficient, you can speak one-on-one -on -one again with an expert by reaching out to hello at phenotips.com. Again, stay tuned for our next webinar, The Future of Pediatric Genetics on August 10th. And I just wanna thank you so much, Dr. McKee, for coming on and just sharing so much insight about open EHR. I learned so much and I think we're all going to be in this world. It's just a matter of when, I think at this point. 
Kira, it's been a pleasure. And I mean, I, I learned something new from everybody I speak to about these things, but it's, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I hope people get something from this. And uh, I'm really dying to hear what people think about it and what uh, how they're doing this in their own practice and in their own areas, because I think we've all got a lot to learn from each other. Yes, well said. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McKee. We really appreciated having you on the show. And thank you for everybody, especially everybody tuning in for the past year. We've really enjoyed putting on this speaker series and we will see you for the next one. Again, that's August 10th. Bye, everybody.